Pastor Mark, I'm one of the lead pastors around here. So glad you guys are here today. <clears throat> Earlier this week, I was watching TikTok. You know, it's that thing you do when you want to just lose hours of your day. Those of you who don't know, TikTok is a bunch of videos in short format. So I was watching TikTok and I came across this video and it was these three girls, three ladies, a mixture of the ladies and girls. Uh, there was a mom, a young girl that was probably six, and then a teenage girl, maybe 14, 15, and they all had eggs in their hands and they were standing in front of a mixing bowl and the mother says, okay, are we ready? And they all said, yes. And so she starts counting down three, two, and before she got the one, the mother and the older daughter cracked the egg in their hands on the little girl's forehead and dropped it into a mixing bowl. <laughs> And I was a little bit shocked, but this little girl was appalled by what had just happened. She, you could see her face and she was like, I cannot believe that just happened. And she looked at her mom and she said, that wasn't nice. That wasn't nice. And at that point, both the daughter and the mother started laughing. The older daughter and the mother started laughing. I started chuckling. She was so cute. Anyways, um, and so uh, they're laughing, and, and you can just see the hurt in this little girl's eyes, and she, and she was just getting madder and madder as the, as the two are laughing, and she looks at her mother, and she says, how would you like it if someone did that to you? And then they busted out laughing, like they were just losing it, and you could just see the anger in this little girl. She still had her egg, and she went, whop, right in her mother's face. And I laughed. It was funny. We're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be talking about sin and how every sin carries a cost with it. And we're going to be talking about forgiveness. So <clears throat> we, Pastor Daniel last week talked about how this part of the creed that we're in is about the the vertical or the horizontal relationships that we have. The first part of the creed was about this vertical relationship that we have with God. And then this part of the creed, it's more about the horizontal stance that we take. So this week we're talking about, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And the thing that I want to talk about though, is because we're talking about this this horizontal relationship, what we're not saying is, is we believe that God will forgive our sins. That's not what we're saying. We're saying we believe in forgiving. Okay. We follow. We believe in forgiving. So our main text this week is going to be Ephesians uh, chapter one, verses four through seven. And we're going to put a little special emphasis on verse seven. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter one, verse four through seven. And it says this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose of his will, to to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So let's go back. Let's look at verse four or verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So the word redemption in Greek means ransom, right? So it says this, it says, um, in him, we have a ransom through his blood. And so what does ransom mean? We're going to look at two different things it could mean. It means parties being paid for are in some sort of bondage. So we're paying for somebody in bondage. We're paying for somebody that is a slave that is captive. So we're paying the ransom to get them out. Or the other way you can look at it is uh, exchanging life for the person in bondage. So I'm going to take the place of this person in bondage. This person's going to get out and I'm going to take the place of this person in bondage. So what does the Bible or when the Bible says Jesus redeemed us, that's what it means. It means Jesus stepped in and took our place in bondage. So forgiveness is the forgiveness or forgiveness the, of our trespasses. The ransom is being paid because we are in bondage of our guilt. So here, guilt is really the problem. And the, the problem is like, how do I deal with the guilt that I have? I have some quotes uh, from people around that, that they talk about guilt. So one says, time heals many things, but has little effect on our guilt. Guilt is the worst enemy of true happiness and self-esteem. It is indeed the worst thing you can ever do to your soul. Guilt can't be erased and when we, and we can't escape from it with any strategy. Within the laws of this planet, it has to be paid. One way or another, that guilty soul must pay its karma feeding it. And then this last one, in order to divest ourselves of guilt, we need to figure out who it is that is judging us. So have you guys ever read the play Macbeth? So when I was in high school, I had to read Macbeth. And I remember spending hours upon hours upon hours of reading it. And I remember after the end of all those hours, not knowing what I had just read. (laughs) You guys with me on that? I know it's English. I know it's English. But man, I don't get it. Anyway, since I've gotten older, I've been able to go back and read some of these things and understand a quarter of what it says now. So I'm I'm still doing pretty good. But there's a scene in Macbeth where Macbeth sees his wife, Lady Macbeth, who has literally just gone crazy because of guilt, literally gone crazy because of guilt. And he turns to his doctor and he says this, this is English, I swear. Canst thou not pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow 
and with some sweet, oblivious antidote, cleanse the bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs down the heart. Okay. That perilous stuff that weighs down the heart is guilt. Okay. Macbeth says to his doctor, can't you mix up some sort of sweet, oblivious antidote, some concoction that will cleanse the guilt out of Lady Macbeth? And the doctor says this, the patient must minister to himself. No human can give another human forgiveness. You can't, I can't walk over to you and you have some guilt inside of you, something that you need forgiveness of. And I can't just walk to you and say, you are forgiven and walk away and that be forgiven. It doesn't work that way. So how does the world say we're supposed to deal with guilt? I went to the all knowing Google and I asked the all knowing Google, how does the world deal with guilt? And I found this article that had some tips on dealing with guilt is from Psych Central. And here are some of the things, the tips on dealing with guilt. What happened to cause this guilty feeling? What specific aspect of this do I feel guilty about? Did I really do something wrong or am I just perceiving that I did something wrong? Is someone, is someone else making me feel guilty? Is it in my control to fix the situation? And could fixing the, the situation help? Now, we get a lot of these same types of answers if we were to go to any health group or any help group. You know, like if you went to this whatever group you needed help from, here's, here's the answers that we often get. Hey, just lower your standards. You won't feel guilty. We've all done the same thing. It's okay. Listen, we may feel better after we go to those groups because of empathy, because we are not alone in the things that are making us feel guilty, right? But it's not the forgiveness of sins. It's not the forgiveness of the guilt that still exists and it still has to be dealt with. Macbeth's doctor was right. No man can give forgiveness. No therapy group can give forgiveness for guilt. But if we look in the Bible, we see Jesus walked around saying, your sins are forgiven. Now, the religious leaders in that time when they heard that, they didn't just say, oh, it's some new therapy, some new help group that's out there. No, they knew this. They knew that only God can forgive. And so what Jesus was doing was blasphemy. No therapy can forgive. It can help us understand the root of where our guilt is coming from, right? It's a good thing, it's not a bad thing. It can help us understand a lot of things, but it cannot help us get rid of our guilt. It's a problem, it's a big problem. And so the reason forgiveness is such a problem is because sin are debts. When we sin, we are building up debts. Let me explain it through this story. Back in June, I'm part of a mentorship group. I'm the leader of, a, of this mentorship group. And we're supposed to meet on, on one Saturday morning a month at Dagny's at 9 a.m. And we've all agreed on that. And so we sent out messages letting everyone know we're going to be doing it. I went to sleep on, on Friday night and I woke up at about 11 a.m. the next day. 
I woke up to a bunch of text messages. Are you coming? Are we still meeting? What's going on? And I had to apologize to everybody. Say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, guys. That's my fault. My bad. Please forgive me. And they all said, sure, sure, sure. No problem. So July comes around. July comes around. It's that week. And we send out messages. We're still meeting. Vance Furtado is in my group. He sent me a text message Friday night. Don't oversleep. We have group tomorrow. So I slept till about 10 a.m. Two months in a row I did this. And I asked for forgiveness. But here's the problem. They're out two hours. I wasted two hours of their time. I owe them two hours because of my sin, because of me not keeping track, me not setting alarms, me not taking what I had already said we were going to do seriously. I wasted their time and I owe them two hours. It's a problem. Here's another example. Say it's, it's a cold day, so we're not in Bakersfield. <laughs> and it's cold out, and you're cold, and you don't have a jacket. I have an extra jacket. I give you my jacket to use. You're going to return it to me next week. So next week comes around, see you, and I'm like, hey, you got my jacket? I'm so sorry, but I lost your jacket. You owe me a jacket, right? Or you at least owe me the money so that I can replace a jacket, right? Right? You owe me a debt. There is a cost to replace it. This is a little bit harder one. Say I slander you. I say some lies about you. Or even I say some truths about you, but I say it in a bad way. How do I monetize what I owe you? Right? How do I monetize me speaking poorly of you? You can't because it's not like I did something that costs. What costs was your reputation, right? I damaged your reputation. So how do I measure that? See, when people say, I forgive you, what they mean is, I'm not actually going to hurt you. They mean, I forgive you, but I don't forget it which means I'm, I'm not going to actively hurt you. I'm going to passively hurt you. So we have some big problems when it comes to, to, to Christians and understanding the significance of what gospel forgiveness truly is. So today I'm going to talk about some points that we have to know. I'm going to talk about a truth that's there. And then I'm going to talk about our response to it. So we're going to be talking about in order to forgive, a payment has to be paid. And this is the truth. There are divine, there is a divine law that must be followed. And when we break God's laws, we owe a debt and it must be paid. And that the only hope that we have is for, is in Jesus to make that payment. And our response to Jesus making that payment has to be, we have to have a transformed life. We have to have a transformed life. So let's say this, this is what forgiveness should look like. Say, I slandered you and then I apologized to you. And you said, I forgive you. A week later, you see one of our mutual friends and you have the opportunity to tell him what happened, 
to explain how hurt you were and how bad of a guy I am. You have that whole opportunity to do it, but you refrain from doing that. What are you doing at that point? You're paying the debt. You're absorbing the cost that I owe you. You're absorbing that cost. Say you see me a week later, I'm standing over here and you walk into the auditorium and you see me and the only thing you want to do is just go as far away as from me as you can. You want to go sit over there because I'm over here. But instead of doing that, you walk over here and you come and see me and you say, hey, how's it going? How's your week been? You act warm when you didn't want to act warm. You hold your tongue when you really want to say something else. You say something nice when you just want to undercut me. What are you doing? It hurts. It's hard. It's difficult. But what you're doing is, is you're paying the cost for me. You're absorbing my cost. Do you guys see that? In order to forgive, a payment must be paid. There's never been sin forgiven that at that same exact moment, it's paid for by the person forgiving. Do you guys hear that? There's never been a moment of forgiveness when at the exact same moment when the person says, I'm forgiving you, that person is paying the cost, not you. Does that make sense? Most people say, I forgive you. And they mean they're not going to punch you in the throat three or four times. Right? They're not going to badmouth you. They're not going to avoid you. But that's not really forgiving. Just saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to avoid you. When you say that, what, what it really means is, is somebody is out something. Okay? Sin, every sin has a cost and no one can forgive without absorbing that cost. You really have not forgiven if you have not absorbed the cost. If I say, I forgive you, but I continue to avoid you, I'm actually making that person pay the cost. This slowly, slowly, a little bit at a time, but I'm not absorbing the cost myself. I'm making that person continue to make that payment. I haven't forgiven. I'm making them make that payment. Think about it for a second. Have you ever been there? where maybe you have not been the person that's been forgiving. You've made that person keep paying that cost just a little bit, just a little bit, but I'm not letting it go. I know I have. Think about this example. Say you're out driving and your car goes out of control and you run into somebody's house. You end up doing more damage to the house than you could ever hope to repair. You pretty much knocked this house down. The debt you owe is greater than your entire net worth. What do you do? How do you deal with that weight? If I were to look in my past, I know that I had those instances where I have sinned and my sin well will outweigh my net worth will ever be. I never will be able to repay that myself. And I'm sure many of you guys have had those instances too. I've, this sermon has been tough for me because I'm talking about sin 
and I'm explaining sin and I'm explaining forgiveness, which means I have to look into myself and I don't like what I see. It's bad. I've done some really bad things that I hope, I hope that some of them, that certain people have forgiven me for some stuff. It's just bad. There's no way we could pay it off. Even if we wanted to, there's just no way. We have this debt and it's weighing on us with no hope to make it right. Now, the Bible says that it's not just this horizontal relationship, right? It's not every time I sin, it's not just with you. There's also a vertical relationship there. So when I'm sinning, there's a horizontal thing, but there's this vertical sin that's happening too. So catch this. This is important for us to recognize. There is a divine law. And that's not a real popular stance to take today. To say that something is right and something is wrong. Everyone believes it's all a matter of perspective. You know, well, you say it's right, but I say it's wrong or vice versa. And then we would say something's right because the Bible says that there's a God and God's the one who's saying something's right and something's wrong. I want to talk about making waves in today's culture. Say God said something. Oh my goodness. People don't even believe God exists. There's no way something can be right or wrong because of the divine law. The, most of us in this room would agree though that there's a divine law. We have this deep sense of what's right and what's wrong because the Bible says so, because God is real. And we know that there's like deeper nature to right and wrong. It's something that we didn't have to get taught. It's something that we know internally that's right. We all know what the golden rule is, right? Do unto others as you would have those do unto you. But because we believe in God and we believe in the Bible, we know that there are actually two golden rules, right? Love, the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? We know there's two golden rules. We know that if we want to be treated a specific way, we should treat people that way. We know that if God created me and he created everything around then I owe him everything, so therefore, I owe him everything, right? It makes sense, no one really has to teach us that. We have an obligation to follow God's laws. And when we break those laws, we break, when we break the 10 commandments, when we don't love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, mind, when we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves, what are we doing? We're running up debts with God and with our neighbors. Does that make sense? There's a double action that's going on here. And what do we expect God to do with all of those debts? What are we expecting? We keep running them up. We keep running up. We hope that he'll just say, ah, forget it, right? Like that's our hope. He just says, forget it. When we break God's laws, we owe a debt and it must be paid. Has to be paid. If someone wrongs you and you say, forget it, then what you're actually doing is you're atoning for that sin. If you refuse to seek retribution, you refuse to take that pound of flesh that we owe, then we're paying for the debt ourselves. It's how it works on earth. There is no such thing as forgiveness without paying a price, without paying the ransom. So then how do we expect, if that's the way it is here on earth, how do we expect it to be any different with us and God? 
God's the one who made it this way. How are we expecting God to just say, forget it? There's no price to be paid. He's just going to let go. He's going to forget about it. We can't. Sin doesn't just disappear into thin air. There has to be a payment. God has to absorb the cost himself. He had to make the ransom payment for our debt. I'm going to make a bold statement here, and I'm going to do it with all due respect to God. But listen, forgiving our sins was the greatest problem that God ever faced. And I know that's bold. How could anything be a problem to God? Well, the answer is it's, it's in his nature. It's in God's nature. He is both holy and he is both loving. God is perfect in every way. He's perfectly holy and perfectly loving. And these two attributes of God cannot play against each other. In Genesis, back in the beginning, all God had to do was to say, let there be light. And there was light. He said, let there be water. And there was water. Let there be animals. And boom, there's animals. So why did it take thousands of years of that time for it to be the right time for Jesus to come home? Why did there need to be this perfectly laid out plan to put Jesus to death for our sins? Why not just say, let there be forgiveness? It's because this proves that God is holy. Without a perfectly holy God, a perfect judge, there's no hope for the universe because there's no solution for evil. When you do wrong, there has to be a payment. There is a debt that you owe when you sin and there has to be a payment. So because God is a perfect judge, a holy God, there's no hope unless a payment is made. On the cross, both holiness and the love of God came together in God's perfect plan. They were perfectly joined together as our solution for sin and evil. Jesus paid the price for us. Do you see how forgiveness was a sin for God? He had to make a payment. He couldn't just say, let there be forgiveness and still be a perfect God. He couldn't do that because of his nature. Unless we understand that, we really don't understand Christianity. The only hope for us is in Jesus. There's a problem that some people believe that there's a way to make it to heaven without having Christ be at the center of that. And if you believe that, you don't actually understand the problem of forgiveness. Why would God send his son to earth as a ransom payment if there was another way to be saved, right? Why would he do this if he didn't have to? Without believing in Christ, without relying on the blood as a payment for our debts, it doesn't work. You can't just be a good person and make it to heaven. Some people will say, well, there's other religions out there. There are other really good people out there. And all they have to do is just be a good person, be a faithful person, and you can make it to heaven. We don't understand the problem of forgiveness. 
Timothy Keller, he has this excellent example of, of this by what he learned from one of his professors. And it goes like this. So say I'm on a boat with my friend and it's, we're in a swift moving river. We're in the Kern River. And he looks at me and he says, you know, I just don't know how to tell you how much I love you. You know what I'll do? I'm going to jump out of this boat and drown myself so that you know how much I love you. So if your friend jumps out of the boat, will you be moved? Will you say, wow, Johnny really loves me? Or would you say, I wish I could have grabbed him and taken him to the hospital to be checked out mentally? Right? It's the second one. Right? It's the second one. Why? Because there was no danger. If there's no danger and a personally, person voluntarily dies for you, it's not really an act of love. It's an act of derangement. He didn't have to die. Then his death is ridiculous. His death is senseless. It's illogical. It's perverted. Now, on the other hand, if the boat's sinking and I don't know how to swim and the only way to save my life is to jump in Drag me to the side, even though you know you will not be able to save yourself and you die in the process. There's no other way to save my life but to jump into the river and pull me to the side. Then I know that that person loved me, right? He gave his life because he knew I was really dead unless he got me out. That's love. That's paying a price. So what do we do with the realization that this is what God did for me? He paid the price. That price was death and he paid that price for me. What do we have to do? We have to have a transformed life. Now, a lot of us say I'm Christian and I believe Jesus died on the cross. But if we're honest, our lives aren't transformed at all. If we go back to the text and look at Ephesians 1, 5, he says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then back to verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. What the Bible's saying here is, is the greatest expression of the glory of what God did on the cross is the transformed lives of the people that he has redeemed and ransomed. It's saying that God has adopted us even in our lowest moment, our lowest moment when we're just full of sin, he has adopted us. He saved you for the purpose of receiving praise for his magnificent grace. Let me repeat that. He has saved you for the purpose of receiving praise for his magnificent grace. That means that you and I are the greatest evidence of the glory of God in the universe. So let's look at Ephesians 3.10. It says this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. In other words, we, the church, are the display case. We're the trophy room and the championship banners 
for the glory of the grace of God. The angels long to look at the wisdom of God that God manifests in the church, in you and in I. When I was a kid, my family went on this family vacation to Tennessee. There is not a ton of things to do in Tennessee, especially if you're a kid. I mean, Nashville's out if you're a kid, right? There's just a ton of things, not a ton of things to do. So we, would, we went and saw a lot of nature because that's what Tennessee has a lot of. And uh, one of the places that we went to was this place called the Lost Sea. It's the, world, it's the largest underground lake in America, and it's 140 feet underground. So we go to it, my family, we take a tour, we go down into the caves, we go down in this room and over to this room. At one point, the tour guide stops us in this small room, and he wants us to experience what true darkness is. So he turns off all the lights and flashlight. You could do this, and you could not see your hand in front of your face. It is the scariest thing to be in complete darkness. I mean, you know people are around you, and you have no idea where. It is crazy. So after that, he takes us down to the, to the bottom of the cave, and you see this, I think it's a five-acre lake below the ground. And you look out and you can see these dark things swimming in the water and they put you on a boat. And uh, as you're on the boat, you get in it and you look down and it's a glass bottom boat. So you can get out and you can see, and you couldn't see that much at first. And they would take us to the, the um, middle of the lake and then they flipped on some lights underneath the boat. And the, the lake's 40 feet deep and you could see straight to the bottom. You could see the rocks. You could see everything in this lake. You could see the fish when they swam underneath you. It was some sort of mountain trout, and you could see them swim underneath it. It was the coolest thing. And I remember thinking as a kid how cool it was to be able to see so much detail. When, when you're just looking over this side, you just see, you know, it's fuzzy, it's cloudy. But when you look through the glass bottom boat, it was clear. I think I have a couple pictures. So this is the lake at the bottom. Pretty cool. That's the glass bottom boat that you'd be in. Show me that next one. You can see the fish in there. You don't see the details of it, but it was amazing to see as a kid. Here's the truth about what I've been talking about. We are the glass bottom boats on the surface of God's heart. The universe, the angels, the world around us is longing to look into it. They long to see, to see God's heart, but the reflections on the surface make it hard to see clearly. But when you and I are transformed by God's love, we become that clear glass that they can see through. They can see past the reflections on the surface. Have you been changed? Have you been revolutionized? A lot of us have not. A lot of us say we're Christians. A lot of us can recite this creed that we're going through. A lot of us have said we've been Christian for a long time now, but we are no trophies of God's grace. We know that there are no angels really looking or studying us. And if they are, they're just seeing a mirror. They're not seeing clear glass. Why would I say that? Why would I say something like that? Because many of us don't understand 
the doctrine, the truth of the cross. Paul says in Galatians six fourteen, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we understand forgiveness was impossible apart from the cross, it was the greatest problem in the history of the universe was how God was going to forgive you and me. What can we really boast about? What do we look to that we can be proud about for Christians? Paul says that we should boast on the cross. In order to boast on the cross, in order for it to lift us up, we have to first get low. The only way to be exalted and loved is to be humble and admit, yes, I deserve death for my sins. Yes, forgiveness was such a problem to the holy God. I was so wicked. I was lost and had to bring, and he had to bring his son as a payment, as a ransom for my sacrifice for my sins. I think many of us still kind of feel like, well, my sin isn't as big as their sins. So here's the problem. Have you guys ever seen an acorn? It's probably a picture because in Bakersfield, there aren't really many oak trees, but uh, an acorn. Did you know that there's enough power in an acorn to fill the entire world with trees? If there were no trees in the world on earth and we had a single acorn, that would be enough to fill the entire world. Now it would take some time, right? Like a tree would have to grow. That tree would then drop other acorns. Those acorns would have to grow. And then the cycle would continue. It would take some time. But the, but the Bible tells us that each one of our resentments is like an acorn. So inside of your acorn is murder. Inside of your acorn is the death of Jesus. They look so innocent. But inside of it, it's, it, it's every possible thought, every possible sin. Because of that, we are worthy of death. And the only way to be free of our debt and our guilt was for Jesus to come and shed his blood. If you believe that, then when we look at the cross, we would say, he did that for me? You came and you took my place? Why did you pay my debt? I didn't do anything but run up debt. And you came and you did this for me. God forbid that I should glory on anything except for the cross. When we boast on the cross and say, I matter to the only one that matters. The only eyes that count see me as beautiful. See me as the son or daughter of the king of the most high because of what Jesus did on the cross. He took my damnation. Every time we look at the cross, every time our hearts should melt. Our sins burn off when we look at the cross that way. I love to watch blacksmith videos, probably because I like fire and hitting things. But I love to watch blacksmith videos. They take pieces of raw iron and they stick it into this fire and they get glowing, burning red, right? And then they take them out and they hit on them with a hammer and sparks fly, things fall off. 
Well, what's happening is that every time that hammer is impacting that iron, impurities are coming to the surface. And the more often that it gets heated and it gets hammered on, the impurities come off and it becomes something different, something that has been changed forever. And that's what happens when we look at the cross, when we look and go, look at what he did. Look at what he did. So our response has to be, if he did that for me, how in the world could I fail to forgive somebody else? How can a Christian boast in the cross, boast in the ultimate sacrifice, the forgiveness of our sins, and not forgive those around us? How does that work? The only way is that either we've lost sight of how big a deal the forgiveness of our sins really were, or we never knew God. The reason I'm beating this point home today is if you don't understand forgiveness, if you don't understand the true weight of forgiveness, then why? Then we would never bother to forgive those around us. We would never bother to forgive our brothers and our sisters. God wants his church to be something that the angels want to study. A church of people who radically forgive all the time. Let's see this picture. Let's be that glass bottom boat. I know that forgiving the person that wronged you, your neighbor, your friend, your mother, your father, I know it's going to be expensive. It's going to be expensive. That's why we have to look to what God did first. What's holding us back from forgiving until we see the difficulty of what God did, the difficulty of forgiving you. You're never going to go through it yourself. As a pastor, I talk to people all the time. And I tell them all the time, you have to forgive. You have to forgive. And the answer I get back most of the time is, it's too hard. I can't do it. It's too hard. But if you think it's too hard, you're not looking at what the cost was when Jesus forgave you. Do you believe that, that your sin carries a debt that you owe? The debt that you owe carries a capital punishment. The only way for that debt to be forgiven by God was for him to come and to pay for it himself. So he sent his son to take the capital punishment for us. Can you boast on the cross? This is the real acid test for believers. Are we true believers? Do we forgive those around us or are we just cultural Christians? See, a Christian doesn't just say, I believe in the cross. A Christian boasts in the cross. And the way they do that is by saying, God came and took away my debt. So watch me as I forgive those around us. Some of us will say, it's so hard, it's too hard. Well, the same guy, the same guy that came and forgave you and had the strength to come to earth and die for you, if you're a Christian, lives inside of you. And all you have to do is say, God, it's too hard for me. Can you please help me? 
And he will. And he will. Growing up in church, I used to sing this old hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross. And that's what we as Christians should do. We should survey the cross. We should study that wondrous cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. We don't just believe in the cross. We survey the cross. We let the truth melt us. We boast in the sacrifice of what Jesus did on the cross by forgiving those around us that have wronged us. We boast on the cross using that same strength that came to earth and paid the price for us. Let's be the glass bottom boat. Let's be the church that is forgiving. Let's be the church, the people of God that boasts in the cross by letting our actions uh, mirror what God did for us. We forgive those around us that have wronged us. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Today, we're gonna be taking communion. Communion is a sacrament that the church follows. It's our opportunity today to take a second and survey the cross and what it means to us. One of the warnings that the Bible gives us about taking communion is is for us to not take it lightly. If we have unforgiveness in our hearts, we are not supposed to take communion until we have dealt with that. So today, before you come and you take the elements, I want you to deal with any unforgiveness that you have. Maybe you just need to sit there before you come and take the elements and just pray and let go. Maybe you need to come forward and ask for prayer. Come to the altar and ask for prayer. Maybe you need to find somebody in this room that you have not yet forgiven and go and forgive. But let's take care of our our unforgiveness. Let's survey the cross and let's boast in what God did by forgiving. So in just a second, Rachel's going to play that hymn, When I Survey That Wondrous Cross. And if you're ready, then come get your elements or sit and take care of what you need to take care of and get your elements. And then when we're done with the song, then we'll partake in our communion. Let me say a prayer for us before we move on. Father God, Lord, I boast in what you've done, God. You took all of my debts, all of my debts, God, and you came and you took my place. God, today, as we survey your cross, God, as we, as we boast in what you've done, God, Give us the strength and the power to forgive, God. Those people that have hurt us, our friends, our family, God, let us be an example. Let us be that glass bottom boat to the world to show the world what your love looks like, what your grace looks like, God. Help us to reflect and shine your glory, God. Lord God, I just... um, ask that uh, in this moment, God, that uh, 
You let us know the actions we need to take and allow us to deal with those sins, with the unforgiveness that we have, God, right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I survey the wondrous Christ on which the So this is our opportunity to survey the cross, to survey what God did. It's something that God commanded us to do as a church, to take this supper, to take these elements and remember the sacrifice that he did on the cross to pay our debts. It says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread 
And when he gave, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we have um, today, just a quick announcement. We have our emergency Q&A session following this service. We'll give you like five minutes whenever we dismiss to allow people to come in and out. But um, we have that today. I just want to remind you guys that when you leave the church, you're on mission. When you step out into the world, you're on mission. It's your job to be active, to look around and to ask, who is God put in my place, put in my, my way today? What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to talk to? What do I need to do? And the only way for us to know is by us being prayed up and in the word every day. So be prepared before you leave your house to be on mission. Be prepared before you leave your house to be on lookout for for what God is doing around you and how you can join in. Amen? All right, say a prayer. Father God, Lord, we love you, God. We love that you love us, God. We love that you paid the price for us, God. We just thank you so much for that, God. Today, as we go out into the world, God, I just ask you to shine your love and shine your protection upon this church, God. To be with them, to shine your glorious face upon them, God. Lord, this week, we just ask you to to open our eyes and open our heart to what you're doing around us. Allow us to see it, God, and allow us to join in in the work that you're doing, God. You are not dead. You are an active God who is working all the time, God, and we just want to jump in with you. Lord, take us to work this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.